Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Wendy Rossav, who is the founder and principal of Rossav Consulting, LLC. For 25 years, she has served as a senior-level consultant to individual philanthropists, community and family foundations, and Jewish communal nonprofit organizations throughout North America and in Israel. Her keen analytic skills, knowledge of all facets of Jewish education and identity-building sectors, as well as her experience in research and evaluation techniques, have made her a sought-after expert on program design and evaluation. Over the years, Wendy has worked as an evaluation consultant, facilitator, and strategist with an extensive array of grant-making and operating foundations and program providers, including most recently the Jim Joseph Foundation, the Steinhardt Foundation for Jewish Life, Hillel International, One Table, and the Honeymoon Israel Initiatives. With a new office in Israel, Wendy and the firm have also begun working closely with the Jewish Agency for Israel the American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, and others on a number of research, evaluation, and strategic consulting projects. I've asked Wendy on the program today, specifically for all the reasons that I've mentioned. Although we've touched a little bit on evaluation before on the program, I know Wendy has a wealth and depth of knowledge and experience to help us get to the next level in our thinking around these important areas of our work. Thank you so much for joining us today and being on the program, Wendy. Happy to be here. So we'll begin as we always do to how you found yourself leading this wonderful growing consulting firm and specifically in this particular area of work. I think my story probably starts somewhere around the early 1990s, probably around 1990 when I was working at Camp Ramon, Ojai, California. I grew up on the East Coast and I was a camp kid and moved out here in 1989 and found myself sort of wanting to get reconnected to the Jewish world that I had left and been disconnected from for some time. I was at camp for about three days. I was working as the sports staff and also teaching carpentry, which were the sort of two things that are great passions of mine and things I was doing when I was a lot younger. The head of the camp saw me, you know, singing raucously in the dining hall in the Chader Ochel one afternoon with a bunch of kids. And he was like, I don't know where you came from or what planet you dropped off of, but your knowledge of Jewish stuff and your passion for Jewish stuff is amazing. And you should be a Jewish educator and, you know, you should run a camp or run a day school or do whatever. And I was like, well, I'm just here teaching sports and woodworking. Right, like, right. I don't know, you know, I don't see myself as a Jewish educator. And he was like, well, you should think about it. And that sort of set me off on a path, honestly, that led to me applying for a Wexner Fellowship. I actually got that, which was amazing. I was living in Tucson, Arizona at the time, coaching sports in a public high school and teaching in a public high school. So I got a Wexner Fellowship and started out at what was formerly the University of Judaism, now the American Jewish University in LA, and did a master's in Jewish education. And while I was there, I was strongly encouraged to think about doing doctoral work just because I was really interested. And I guess I had the capacity to think about that and do that stuff. And so I applied to the School of Education to the PhD program at Stanford and got in, much to my surprise. And the foundation was nice enough to continue my fellowship into that 
doctoral work. And while I was there, probably my second year as a doctoral student, it's around 1996, I think, going way back. And I got a phone call from someone at the Jewish Education Service in North America, JESNA, which is no longer, but then was, you know, doing a lot of work in research and evaluation in the Jewish education and identity building space. And they had some work that they were doing out here in the Bay Area. They needed someone who was local to help out. And they had heard about my doctoral work at Stanford and thought that I would be a good person to help. And so I did a sort of a part-time gig for Jesna while I was in my second year in the doctoral program. And that just turned into more and more and more. And I actually started working almost full-time for Jesna by 1998 or 99. What was your PhD work in? My PhD was in the School of Education. It was in curriculum and teacher education, but I actually wrote about rabbinic training, how people are trained in seminary. I was really interested in sort of, you know, the notions of how is it that a regular old person goes into a seminary and comes out a pastoral and spiritual and religious figure and that whole process of formation and spiritual formation and religious formation and sort of forming habits of mind and heart and hand in doing the work of the rabbinate. So that's what I actually wrote about for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I think five people read it. My mother was my <laughs> so, And everybody on my committee. Yeah, I thought it was a great piece of work. You know, I also knew that going into the academy, like I didn't want to like stay in the academy. I mean, I didn't do the PhD in order to then become a professor and sort of continue on in that vein. I always knew that I was wanting to sort of apply my work in the real world, quote unquote, not in the ivory tower. So the Jesna piece just sort of started just by chance. And then it just grew. And I think my skill set grew and my interest grew and their interest in me grew. And by the time I was finishing my coursework and then starting on my dissertation, I was almost working full time for Jesna, telecommuting from here in the Bay Area to their New York office. And then I worked for Jesna for 10 years from 1998 to 2008. And that's really where I cut my teeth on learning really sort of all the ins and outs of program evaluation, of research and education. Did you even had various areas and positions while you were there or were you mostly in one particular area? I was in what was then called the Berman Center for Research and Evaluation. And that was named after and through an endowment from Bill Berman, you know, Zichon Olivracha, who was just an amazing philanthropist, an amazing human being, and really felt that Jewish education really needed to be more evidence-based and data-driven and sort of all of that. And he was one of a few philanthropists at the time who was really focused on that kind of approach a data-driven approach, an evidence-based approach. And if we talk later in this podcast about what's changed in the field since mm-hmm. I started in it, you know, 25, oh, you know, almost 30 <laughs> years ago, for sure, that's one of the things yeah. that's changed. So you were at Jesna for 10 years and kind of really got some of your basis of experience. So what was after that for you? The last two years that I was there, and I'll be, you know, perfectly frank, I started to get increasingly frustrated with what I was experiencing as the disconnect between funders and grantees around what constitutes success, how will you know, when will you know, what kinds of evidence are going to be credible and reliable to whom, and understanding whether you've been meeting your goals and things of that nature, and also getting really curious about when foundations and philanthropists make grants how do they assess their own impact, right? Because ultimately, if they make good grants and they make good bets and they make good investments with good organizations that are doing good work, then that redounds back to them. But they also have their own strategies and their own philanthropic goals. And what I wasn't seeing was I had done, I don't know, hundreds of program evaluations at that point. And I just felt like either the funder would call 
Chesna and say, we want you to do this evaluation because we're not sure we want to keep funding this program and we want to find out, is it working and what impact is it having? Or the grantees would call us and say, our funder told us we have to have an evaluation. And there was no conversation between the funders and the grantees. And I wanted to have those conversations. And to be perfectly frank, I was in middle to senior management at the time. You know, it's my eighth year there. And I had sort of gone up the ladder and I was the director of the center by that point. I had started as a senior research associate and then moved to be the associate director of the center. And then I was already the director of the center at that mm-hmm. point. And I went to John Wucher and to others, you know, again, Zihona Levachat's sort of amazing. All these people are gone now. But I went to these people and I said, you know, I really think we need to be facilitating these conversations, right, mm-hmm. before we start doing all these projects. And I didn't get a whole lot of positive response from them. I was just becoming increasingly frustrated with what I felt was throwing good money after bad, you know, not bad, but not nearly as helpful as it could have been. And the other thing that was really bugging me, Michelle, and I'll be perfectly frank about this too, is that pretty much every single study that we did was totally proprietary, right? It never saw the light of day. It never got into the practice space, either the philanthropic practice space or the educational practice space. And I had a lot of tacit knowledge, you know, there was such a treasure trove of information that wasn't getting out into the field. So was the sense that that's just not how we work? Yeah. That's just not what our role is. We stay out of that. Yeah. So I started my last two years there looking for other jobs because Mm -hmm. I was feeling really frustrated about that. After two years of poking around, I had a number of job offers. And I also was thinking about sort of leaving the Jewish world and doing this kind of work in more enlightened places Mm -hmm. in the secular education world. And a couple of People, and I'm happy to mention who, but I don't have to, but a couple of folks sort of pulled me aside and said, you know, Wendy, you have a really good idea here and these values are really important and this is where the field needs to go. And if you have the courage, I think you should start your own thing. I think you could be really successful and I think you could really help us and help the field. One of those people was Sandy Carton at the Schusterman Foundation. And one of those people was Harlene Appleman, who was at the Covenant Foundation. And then I got a couple other utzes from a few other people. I basically quit my job and I gave notice in like January, February of 2008. I started Rosoff Consulting July 1 of 2008. And then the economy tanked. Yes, great timing. <laughs> uh, perfect timing. But I had a couple of sort of anchor clients and it was just me. I called it Rosoff Consulting because like all I had was my name you, and my yeah. reputation. And so it was just me and I was working out of my house for the first six months. Then I got a little office in downtown Berkeley, you know, that was about the size of a shoebox. But my family was like, you have to get out of the house you know? <laughs> and you have to get out of your pajamas in the morning, you know. Yeah. And then more and more work started coming and I was looking at sort of different projects that weren't just evaluation. And in fact, when I started, I wasn't even doing program evaluation. What I was really doing was working with foundations around how to be more strategic and data-driven around their grant making Mm -hmm. and how to set up evaluation processes and procedures and policies. I had a four-year consultancy with the Schusterman Foundation over that period of time, continuing work on with the Covenant Foundation in this regard started working a little with the Jim Joseph Foundation as they were sort of coming online and a few others. I didn't want to do program evaluation because I didn't want to like go into direct competition with my former employer. And that was amazing. And I think my big crossover project was in, I think it was in 2010, got a project with the Jewish Foundation of Cincinnati, which 
had just shifted from being a $3.5 million a year grant-making foundation to a $15 million a year grant-making foundation through the sale of the Jewish hospital. So it was a hospital conversion foundation of which there are many in the Jewish world. The Rose Community Foundation in Denver is an example. And that was more of like strategy and really helping the foundation and the trustees really working intensively with the group of trustees around, you know, where did they want to take their philanthropy? Where did they want to take the foundation? What would be their sort of strategic plan in their first three to five years? How would they relate to the federation that had been an equal in terms of funding, but now would be dwarfed five times by their funding? What would that look like in the community? What were the needs in the community? Sort of all of that. That's and that they were being that thoughtful about the process. <laughs> they were being really thoughtful about That's the process. Excellent. And I was fortunate enough to get the project. And for that project, I needed some teammates. And mm-hmm. so I went to a few colleagues who I'd cultivated relationships with over the years. And I put together a team, but they were all independent contractors. But it was through working with that team that I honestly, and this really goes back to sort of my days as an athlete, I was always a team sport kid. Like mm-hmm. you know, I played soccer and baseball and softball and basketball. And you know, it was always a team sport. And I was always like the team captain. I was always sort of like the coach and the captain right. and sort of the organizer. And I just realized that like, I don't really like actually working by myself. Some people do. I think I work best when I have a team of people to work with. And I was getting more and more projects and it was harder to find the right people at the right time who I could source into projects who were independent consultants themselves. And I started hiring staff and... You know, I hired, I think, my first part-time staffer in like, I don't know, probably 2011 or 2012. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot you know, of hustle. Here we are, here we are six <laughs> years later and, yeah. and we're a team of 18 or 19 or something like that. That's so excellent. yeah, that's my story. Fantastic. So let's go into some of your current work now that you have this big team. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've opened an office in Israel and doing some more work there. What is your work We'll start with today and we'll go backwards and forwards as far as the landscape. But currently, what kind of stuff does your firm work on? We do a lot of program evaluation for sure. We are also doing some applied research in Jewish education, meaning not just evaluating programs, but looking at sort of broader phenomena in the field. We are also doing systems coaching work with the addition of Pearl Mattinson to our team. That was back in 2012. She joined us and she's a certified systems coach and a leadership coach and an amazing facilitator. So we were sort of incorporating that into our work. Was that like on the operation side, making sure that an organization has all the systems they need? Is that what you mean by... So systems coaching is really... It views organizations as systems, almost as not so much family systems per se, but there is some family system stuff in there. And so sometimes it'll be a coaching or a systems coaching consultancy that's about how a team is functioning inside of an organization, whether that's a leadership team or whether that's the relationship between the senior leadership team and the sort of the more middle management group or sort of the insider outsider piece. And we've started to sort of use a lot of the theory of systems coaching, particularly when we get to the point in a project, in an evaluation project, where we're bringing our findings to the client and to a group of stakeholders that we've assembled. We really believe in what we call meaning-making conversations. So we don't just sort of write the report and say, okay, here you go. But actually, even before we write a report, we bring together a stakeholder group that we've been working with all along. And that's another way in which we work differently, I think, than a lot of other groups Mm -hmm. doing this work is that, yes, we have a central project liaison with each client, but we also insist that whoever the key decision makers are and the key stakeholders 
and constituencies are that are going to need to be making decisions or thinking about the implications of what's being learned through a program evaluation or research project, that those people are in at the beginning and that as we have inflection points through the project and we have findings to share, that we do that as a group. And that facilitating that conversation around like, here's what we've learned. What are you guys hearing? What are you seeing here? This is what we're seeing, but how are you thinking about it? And how is this going to, you know, change how you think or what you do in your organization. And so that kind of facilitation and meaning making is really, I think, a hallmark of our work. And we're doing it in an even more explicit way, you know, now with, you know, through that sort of systems coaching lens. Right. And so it sounds like you're not terribly shy about maybe kind of highlighting some reasons things might not be working or might be working instead of just saying, you know, you didn't get X amount of people to some program, but more so, you know, Susie can't stop arguing with Bob. And, you know, maybe we want to think a little bit more about kind of something like the politics of how things are operating to provide advice and how to improve a program that's not necessarily just functional. Yeah, in some cases, it can go to the organizational piece. And in some cases, those consultancies are totally separate. Like we have program evaluation and we have the systems coaching work. We also continue to do as requested consultancies, you know, with foundations and philanthropies. We do a lot of work with the Aravim Philanthropic Group. We're actually just about to start a project in a community that's working with a foundation, but it's a group of synagogues that are trying to sort of figure out how together they can sort of revitalize and enhance Jewish life in the small community. We have all kinds of things coming our way. And then we sort of have our bread and butter stuff, which is we do a lot of work, you know, in the day school sector. We do a lot of work in the teen space. We do a lot of work in summer camp space, early childhood education. We do a ton of work on the campus space with both Hillel, you know, individual Hillels with SIC, and then with organizations that are sort of working in and around the campus space. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Wendy, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Robert Bank is the president and CEO of American Jewish World Service, or AJWS, who discusses with me his work in promoting Jewish values around the world in an attempt to positively influence public policy, thoughts, and the way the American Jewish community interacts with the world around us. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. Most people want to stay in the country in which they were born. They just wish that the country in which they were born were not so violent, were not run by drug cartels, was not at war, was etc. And the United States should always be a safe haven for those who are fleeing persecution. And we are living in a world today in which over 65 million people are migrants. And they are moving from one place to another, not only because of persecution, but because of climate change. They are climate refugees. The places they live no longer have water or the places they live have too much water. So we at AJWS are really committed to solving these problems in country. So it's a great privilege that we have, even during these turbulent times in the United States, to try and persuade not only those who run this country, but American Jews to care as they do for those who are suffering in other countries. Because if we can strengthen civil society in Mexico or Kenya or Sri Lanka, then the opportunities and chances for improving the lives of millions of people in those countries is huge and actually will lessen the burden of immigration and migration. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Robert in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Wendy. 
So as you alluded to a little earlier, let's look back a little bit. So you've obviously been in this work for quite some time. It's kind of a two-part question. So the first is, you know, in the trends area, you know, just things you've noticed that have changed in the field. And then I always like to ask, what were some assumptions when you started? And we'll start with when you started your firm that you thought was the reality or assumptions that you had about your work that now that you think about those, you're like, well, not so much, or my thinking has really evolved on this or that kind of area. So I'd love to just kind of hear how things have changed. Certainly. And I think I alluded to this earlier. I think some of what's changed is that I think there are more foundations and more nonprofits in the Jewish communal educational identity building space that are organizations and initiatives, that is when I say nonprofits, that are really quite thoughtful, not to say that there weren't before, but I think there are more of them that are quite thoughtful about what information is important to collect, what things do they need to learn, how can they bring data to bear on their sort of day-to-day work without drowning in it, without collecting reams and reams of stuff and not ever looking at it. And Mm -hmm. just to say, oh yeah, we did this evaluation or we're doing this tracking or we're doing this or doing that. And I think there are just a lot more organizations that are more sophisticated about this stuff and wanting to increase their capacity. And by capacity, I mean both knowledge, skill, and human capacity to do this work in-house. That is definitely a difference. And on the philanthropy side, I think in particular... The work of the Jim Joseph Foundation, since they came onto the scene, roughly the same time that I started Roosevelt Consulting, they started a couple of years before, you know, and I think Chip Edelsberg, the founding director there, was just really wanting that foundation to be, you know, and the board itself wanting to be very strategic to apply principles of strategic philanthropy. I think we're about 10 years behind where the sort of general sort of leading edge of general philanthropy is around this kind of stuff. But I see more and more philanthropies in the Jewish space sort of taking this approach, not to say that strategic philanthropy is the best or the only kind of philanthropy, but certainly employing those principles, even if part of the philanthropy is taking other approaches like being more entrepreneurial or being more innovation-based or frankly, you know, even in the case of foundations where they're living donors and frankly, it's their money and they can get up in the morning and do whatever (laughs) they want with it, you know? But really being thoughtful and taking seriously the opportunities that are available by virtue of gathering and using data in smart ways. And again, that I have seen just change pretty dramatically over the last 10 years. Yeah, we had Josh Miller from the foundation on the program and just talked about the approach of the relationship, you know, whereas things, you know, like grants from a foundation can be very transactional of here's the money, we want you to do this thing that you wanted to do and then come back to us with a report and tell us, you know, if it was successful and then maybe we'll give you more money and maybe we won't. Right. And you really just talked about, you know, how do we take that and make it a relationship? How do we grow then together and learn together and move what we're both trying to do forward together as opposed to what it sounded like, you know, when you first started in this field, which is a very transactional relationship, which sounds like what's been changing. And I would say you hit the nail right on the head is that for us, we very much want to be in that space between the funder and the grantee around that relationship and around the hard questions of 
what are you all driving toward and how are you going to know whether you've been successful and not just whether you have been, it's not just thumbs up, thumbs down. You got an A, you got an F, you know, mm-hmm. but really what are we learning along the way here and what's that continuous improvement cycle and how does information and data sort of play into that for sure. Right. And I'm thinking about the programs that you are involved with evaluating are the pitfalls that don't make something successful or the reasons that do make something successful. Have you seen any shifts in those trends as far as what is good and what is bad and what you're seeing in these evaluations as well? Like this used to not be something that was a problem and now it seems to be a problem or wow, this new thing is really helping, you know, these projects be successful. If there is no answer, that's fine too. <laughs> but I was just Yeah, curious. look, I guess I would say more generally that obviously everyone is talking about the millennial generation and, you know, the one behind it and how to engage these folks, how to keep them engaged and the notion that millennials are not joiners and they're not going to be part of legacy organizations and they're going to look to do things DIY and they're going to look for opportunities. It's about meeting them where they are, not Mm -hmm. about asking them to come to quote unquote us. And we're just constantly in that conversation, constantly in that conversation. And we're also at the same time, you know, inside of a conversation now about sort of the next generation after that, right? Which is teens who are coming up and they are radically different than the generation in front of them. I mean, we know, frankly, that the generational brackets or cohorts are getting narrower, right? And the shift between generations is getting greater. So those are some really interesting phenomena that we're sort of dealing with and seeing every day in our work. And especially when you think about the notion of ongoing engagement and ongoing identity building, because we know identity is fluid. It's not like, you know, okay, these kids have gone through these programs and these teens have gone through these programs and now their Jewish identities are set and now they go off to college and everything's good and fine and great in the world. We know that identity is evolving. We know that it's changing. We know that it's not static. And we also know that, I'll conclude myself here because I'm a Jewish educator, like from the start, start, we know that the way that young people have to be engaged is really not just about the Jewish stuff. It's about their whole person and that we can't just focus on Jewish identity or Israel connection or sort of these things that, you know, used to be sort of the focus of specific interventions, but we really have to think about who these people are and how they are in the world and their relationships that they have and sort of where the Jewish thing sort of all fits there. Mm -hmm. And not just that it fits at a particular point in time, but how does that shift and change over time? And how can the field be responsive and not just responsive, but also proactive and really thinking deeply about educational technologies and pedagogies that are really going to work in this day and age when you can, you know, this is right here, you know, your device, you can get any piece of information you want about anything anytime. But the question is how somebody when they're like ask questions, I was like, well ask the Google machine, ask the all yeah. brain. Like why yeah. are you even asking a question? You don't need to anyway. Yeah. No. Yeah. But what's the role of a one table? What's the role of a summer camp? What's the role of a teen youth program? Like how does that all work now? It doesn't work like it worked, you know, even 10 years ago. It certainly doesn't right. work like it worked 20 years ago. I mean, we've had not necessarily similar conversations, but you know, we've talked to One Table and Kesha and BBYO and kind of talking about with a lot of millennial organizations of which I've called them this past year and kind of a lot of these issues. Have you been hearing, especially in the kind of space of Jewish education, you know, maybe tends to focus younger, but not necessarily of the focus being too much on these cohorts and leaving behind, I hate to use the word baby boomers because that's a generation that's going to continue to shift, but 
some people who like the traditional way <laughs> of being engaged and learning and that those people are being left behind or disregarded for this shiny, new, exciting way of being Jewish or identity, if that's something you're coming across in your conversations and evaluations? That's a great question. I mean, look, here's when we get on the hot seat. We get asked questions like, well, should I, particular philanthropist, fill in the blank, spend my money or put my chips down on fill in the blank? This intervention or that intervention? (laughs) Which one's better? Which one's going to be a better bang for my buck? The answer is like, we can't answer that question. If we could answer that question, if we had a definitive answer to that question, then I don't know what, but that's not an answerable question. But I think what I do want to say is that there are still plenty of organizations and foundations, frankly, that are investing in, you know, I don't know whether you want to call it mainstream or legacy or, you know, programming or whatever, but you were sort of mixing two things. I think you were talking about that and you were also talking about different cohorts, right, that may be getting ignored. Right. So you mentioned boomers, for example, right? So I was born in the last year of the boom, right, 1964. I just gave away my age. There you go. That's all good. Um, <laughs> Something to be proud so of. So in front of me, you know, I mean, some of my friends are, you know, in their 60s and their 70s, mm-hmm. you know, in their 80s and they're squarely in that boom and they are incredibly active and incredibly involved and what programming is for, like, that's right. a whole cohort, right? David Elcott talks a lot about that. If you haven't interviewed mm-hmm. him, you should interview him. He's a riot. He's really thinking about that stuff a lot, probably because he is a boomer and it's self-reflection. But, you know, we still haven't, like, you think about it, right? I mean, now we're going into like young kids, right? Like preteen, pre-bar and bat mitzvah. The vast majority of kids in North America who are getting any kind of Jewish education before bar and bat mitzvah are in congregational schools. And for the most part, they still suck, right? (laughs) You know, there are some new models. There are some really exciting things going on out there and the Nitsan network and some points of excellence and bright points out there. But for the most part, religious school is still religious school for most of the people who are in it. And and the vast majority of Jewish kids who are in some kind of Jewish education before Bar and Bat Mitzvah are in those spaces and places. And that's not changing, Mm -hmm. you know, not really. There are some instances, but, you know, it's not really moving. I think the whole early childhood education sector, I mean, there's a bunch of philanthropists right now trying to figure out how to really like move the needle there. But was that in the interest of keeping kind of young families involved in the community or just in general thinking that it's not an excellent Well, it's both. It's both. It's that, and we don't know the statistics on this, but the sense generally is that market share is not very high, right? So the Mm. number of kids who could possibly be in Jewish ECE settings, the percentages are very low in some communities for sure. And that those spaces could be very powerful engagement mechanisms for families with young children. Mm -hmm. And we know like families with young children, they're looking to be around other people right. who have young children because that's like when you have a little kid, man, like that's your whole life. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard work. And that, you know, I think there's tremendous opportunity there, but that's a total nut we haven't cracked for sure. Yeah. So looked at a little bit of what you do now, a little bit of how it's changed. What does the future hold? What are you seeing coming down the pipeline? Or if you had unlimited resources, how would you going forward support the community in these areas? So that's a great question. Look, so here's the thing. We rely on obviously folks like the organizations that ask us to do work for them and the foundations that ask us to do work for them and the RFPs that come across my email or come across the transom every day that Mm -hmm. we have no idea are coming. So we're a professional services firm. We're a for-profit, fee-for-service based company. And the work that we do 
only gets done when we either get invited to do it or when we win a competitive RFP mm-hmm. that's been put out there. Ideally, in a perfect world scenario, I would love to be in a position where Rosoff Consulting could also initiate research in areas that we see are perhaps in need of information, in need of data, in need of new insights that can be brought through that process and putting some of our own dollars to that, but perhaps you know, getting support in order to be able to mm-hmm. do stuff like that. That's a way that we'd like to make a contribution. I think the other way that we are making contribution and we want to continue to do so is that we pretty much, I would say 80 to 90% of our work is out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either on our website, on our clients' websites, it's out there in the public domain. We're also trying to push and advocate for not just in our own work, but in other work that's commissioned and contracted with other organizations like ours or not like ours that do this work, our competitors, quote unquote, and our mm-hmm. colleagues in the field. We are continuing to push and advocate for open source data sets going into the Berman Policy right. Archive, the Question Bank, things of that nature. We'd like to see more and more of that happen. And we'd also, any opportunity we get, and we don't get compensated for it, but if we're asked to speak on a panel or asked to present somewhere that's mm-hmm. you know not it's connected to our work, but it's not for a client and for a project, we go and we do it. You know, we, we spend our own dollars and we get on a plane and we devote senior people's time to go and make those presentations because we really feel like it's getting the stuff out there and really engaging people in those conversations that ultimately is going to make a difference because we can do a gajillion projects and write a gajillion reports right. and put a gajillion decks out there. But like, it's really that getting into a room with people and really talking about this stuff mm-hmm. that I think really matters and changes people's attitudes and hopefully gives them new insights and information. The sharing piece, you were so frustrated at the beginning of your career that wasn't yep. happening. It's great. And so we look for opportunities to do that, not just in the context of our projects, but you know, when we're asked to do it, we gladly say yes. Wonderful. So you talked a lot throughout your whole story, both when you talked about your experience at camp and when you talked about your experience going to graduate school and even starting this firm, how important different mentors have been in your life and your career path and kind of ushering you through all these various places. Again, I like to ask him multiple questions at <laughs> once and you can answer. So are you seeing this happening in the organizations you're working with? And in that same vein, is there advice for people in the field around how you've experienced mentorship and the importance in your life? Is it happening? Does it feel like it needs to happen more? Yeah, I just love to kind of get your thoughts on what that impact has been like for you and if you're really seeing that happening. Yeah, I mean, obviously in light of some of the recent you know, news and revelations about some significant figures in certainly the space that I occupy and mm-hmm. the misuse of, you know, and frankly, abuse of power dynamics in such mentoring relationships. It's a tricky topic right this second. You know, I feel very, very fortunate that I've been able to create something along with some very wonderful people who mm-hmm. take very seriously the notion of identifying, recruiting, and really mentoring and teaching the next generation of people who are going to be doing this work after, you know, folks like me and my colleague, Alex Pomson and Pearl Mattinson, and those people in particular who you know, are my senior leadership team, when we move out of this space, you know, in the next 10 to 15, whatever years. So it's something that's always been very front and center for me, for sure. I think that 
I've had some really good fortune to have some great opportunities and, and some doors open for me by some very influential people. I've also had periods of time where doors have been closed by some very influential people. But I think for the most part, I've been incredibly fortunate. I think the gift of my Wexner Graduate Fellowship and the colleagues and the senior leadership of that foundation and the folks that I was lucky enough to come into contact with along the years have been instrumental. I think some of the folks at Stanford have really been instrumental. Some of our clients, longstanding relationships, people who have really been very gracious. I want to pass that on. You know, that's really, really important to me. I would hope that if you talk to any of my staff at at some point, you would hear that real commitment to Mm -hmm. giving people opportunities, to developing them, to really including them. I mean, we do have a hierarchy here, but it's pretty flat. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we we have interspersed teams and people are working together and working on all kinds of things. You know, it's hard for me to say in the particular organizations that we work with, we don't do that kind of work where we actually see that mentoring happening. I think that there are a lot of really good initiatives right now in the Jewish communal and Jewish education space where there are opportunities for professional development, for growth, for advancement. Mm -hmm. I hope that trend continues because that is also a new trend. And I think we're seeing a lot of energy, a lot of innovation coming into the space and a lot of opportunity. And you asked me earlier a question that I wanted to say something about. It was something like, what assumptions did you have when you started Mm -hmm. that have either been borne out or have shifted? And I think, you know, one of my assumptions when I started was that, especially in foundations, like they know what they're doing. They have all this money to give away and it's really easy to give money away and they all know what they're doing. And what I've learned is it's easy to give money away, but it's hard to do it well. And that they don't have it all figured out. Just like the people that are receiving the money and trying to do their great work in the field. And, you know, they're figuring it out too. And coming into that space and having those conversations where I think we get to in many of our projects because of our relationships and because of the kind of the way that we do our work, we get to see some really honest, candid conversations Mm -hmm. and some wonderings and some reflections and some, wow, this is a little trickier than maybe we thought. And I didn't see that back when I started. And I think I sort of just assumed that these people had it all figured out. And maybe they did back then and they were different people (laughs) and it's different now. But I go into every conversation now as I sort of mature and have done this work for years and I mature as a person and I just realize like, we're all trying to figure this out. You know, if it were easy and the answers were readily apparent and just out there, you know, hanging on the back of my wall over here, like we'd know them already. And reality is it's not. People are changing. Times are changing. Things are changing. Ways of engagement are changing. Generations are changing. Things we talked about all through this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so there's reason to pause and think and reflect. And there's also some great opportunity to do some great work and to continue to think deeply and carefully about how we collectively like engage, you know, the Jewish community. And it's not one monolithic community. It's like everybody. And it's a mixed community. It's a mixed multitude. You know, it's just like standing in Sinai. There was a mixed multitude. We've got a mixed multitude now, you know, and it's like Jews come in every walk, straight, stripe, class, race, every ethnicity, everything. And that's the reality of our Jewish community today. And like, how should we be thinking about that? And how should we be thinking about like, what are meaningful outcomes and what are meaningful things to measure when we think about Jewish identity and things like that? It's not easy. 
it's not easy, right. but it's heck of fun. And I feel <laughs> really lucky that I get to do this work like every day. I get up and I get to like come here every day. Excellent. It's That's awesome. Always one of my last questions about how you keep it all together, how you keep it all balanced. You've got a, <laughs> a growing firm of, like you said, 18 people, a new office. Yep. You know, yep. kind of, I'm assuming you have a personal life in there somewhere and, you know, yeah, and friends. And one of the pieces that I think is helpful in that is really loving what you do, which is great to hear from you. Any other tools that you employ yeah. in being conscious of that? <laughs> people who know me know that roughly between 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning, I'm inaccessible because I'm in a pool. I swim pretty much every morning, partly because it's good exercise. And I used to be a runner and, a, you know, mm. like I used to pound a lot and run a lot and do a lot of things. You know, I can't really do that anymore. So swimming is great, but it also is just headspace. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. you just go back and forth and back and forth. And some people are like, isn't that boring? And I'm like, it's actually not boring. It's meditative and I don't meditate and I don't sort of do any of that stuff. But like when I'm in the pool, that's where I think you know, that's where all kinds of ideas come into my head. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I get out of the pool and I feel good. So that is critical. Like come hell or high water, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in the pool. And I do have a family. My partner is the head of a school, of a Jewish day school. So like, nice. <laughs> like I have it all right. the time. I just had a kid, our oldest left for Israel yesterday. She's going to be drafting into the army. Congratulations. Um, months. And that's, very exciting. that's a big deal. And our youngest is a rising junior and she's going on a whole different path. We like to say that we have like Jewish diversity in our own house. You know? right. We all have very different practices and all have very different ways of being. And our oldest who just left for Israel to draft into the army is very religious. And so we have an Orthodox kid in our house and right. you know, all the way across the spectrum. So yeah, I have an amazing community here in Berkeley and in the Bay Area. I have an amazing team and those they're part of my network. Yeah, showing up to work and liking the people that you work with really makes a big difference in oh your overall God. happiness. Oh my God. And I feel like I have the best team ever. <laughs> they're nice. They're smart. They're committed. They're just good people. You know, they're yeah. just good people. You can't always say that, you know, about everybody. Yeah. But like right now I have a fantastic team. Well, we've touched upon a lot of different things, your own personal story and journey, the field that you work in, some trends. Anything that we haven't touched upon or any last thoughts that you want to circle back to? I think this has been incredibly fun to reflect on. And, you know, the only thing I would say, and just because I, you know, it really takes a village, like I am blessed. I keep saying it, but I am really blessed to be working with the kinds of people that I'm working with, both here at Roseoff Consulting and the colleagues and clients that we get to work with every day. Like we get to work with some really special people. You know, it's a total gift. I don't take it for granted ever. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, for sharing your experience and your thank insight you. in your work. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I've spoken before about the value outside consultants bring to our organization, the niche expertise that they bring in helping us examine our most pressing issues. What I like about Wendy's approach is how much she involves her clients in the process of her work, investing them in the results that they were intricate in creating. There's no silver bullet for what program, project, idea will solve all the challenges we face in the various sectors of our Jewish community. The goal is for those who wish to influence change to focus on building the necessary relationships that foster those new ideas, help them grow and adapt over time, then share those as widely as possible, knowing that at the very least, they've made an impact in that one community for that one child. So your organization building the necessary relationships 
to influence the change you are looking to affect. It is only in sharing what lessons we've learned as widely as possible that we can help to improve the Jewish learning experience for more and more institutions. And thankful to Wendy for sharing her experience in doing her work to help organizations see what is and what could be. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website, it's who you know the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you.